RGO Hothouse is producing a show for Eddie Pepitone with an amazing lineup. Mark Marin, Rob Delaney, Nick Kroll, Paul Shear, Annie Kindler, Greg Fitzsimmons, Jen Kirkman, Sean Conroy, plus special guests. It's only $15 to $18, depending on when you buy your ticket. It's to raise money for a documentary about Eddie Pepitone, and it's at the Echoplex on June 26th. Go to proudlyresents.com slash bitter to get tickets. You are listening to Proudly Resents. Oh, reason. I, I can't even hear you. Well. Hi, this is Danny Wazell. Uh, proudly Resents. The Cult Movie Podcast. The Adam Biggest Men Show. To all you Proudly Resents listeners out there, just remember, you can't test on hospitality. Oh, all right. So it's uh, Proudly Resents, ProudlyResents.com. It's the first time I've done a Skype call with the video, so it's a little awkward because uh, our guest is staring right at me and vice versa. Um, but Eric Schaefer's our guest. He directed a lot of movies, including My Life's in Turnaround, was his first film. And that movie um, meant a lot to me. And now we just watched it at my birthday party, and Eric was nice enough to leave a message to our friend Chris Gore. And he is nice enough to do an interview with us now. Thank you for coming. Thank you. It's so, it's so my pleasure. Listen, I was I was... On vacation, when I got this mystery text, which I, I didn't know was some jealous, rageful boyfriend of some girl that was, you know, sending me MySpace or Facebook things, and in right. fact, it turned out to be an authentic, amazing text from our friend Chris about you guys screening Turnaround, and, and I was very honored that you did that. That's great, and we, I guess we owe you some money for that. <laughs> well, no, I'm sure you had, to, you had to spring for the screening room, right? We'll call it even. Eric, let's talk a little about your your first film, and I'll just give some more of your credits. You've done the TV show Starved, which is great, and Gravity, um, some of your you and Wiley Spidell and Fall, and we'll talk about your new film, which I saw. Wiley uh, Spidell and Wiry Spindell, both those movies. Oh, you did both of them? I thought you only did the second one. <laughs> Sorry, that I was, like Wiley Spindell. Whatever you said, I actually like even better than Wiley. That'll Spindel. be this the sequel, Wiley yeah. uh, Spindle <laughs> after Fall, Winter, Summer, Spring. Yeah, um, exactly. Why did you give it such a confusing name? And did you think it would cause any problems? Which movie? Wiry Spindell? Yes. No, Fall. <laughs> yes, Wiry Spindell. <laughs> uh, you still can't say it. It's one of those things. Okay. I All don't. right, so listen, but to answer your question, um, Wiry Spindell, I, you know, I don't know. I, I, I made up with this guy's name, Bwick Elias. Well, first it started with Splick. Right, your first in movie. My Life's in Turnaround. Um, and I, I wanted to call him Spick Hoffman. But I, I realized, and this was in a day and age when there was no such thing as PC, right? It was 1992 we shot that film. Uh-huh. But even I, back then, being a New Yorker, thought, well, Spick, you know, I don't want, I, I'm really not interested in hurting anyone's feelings. So well, Where did even Spick come from? Well, just Spick sounded like a funny term. But then I realized that it's also a derogatory term for Puerto Ricans. Hello. So that's not what I was after. I was just coming up with names, and I thought Spick Hoffman sounds funny. But then I realized that people might think I meant that. So I added a an L and made it Splick. So that's where that came from. And then Bwick, I don't even, <laughs> Bwick just sounded like that Ben Stiller character in, in Influcy Bell. So, so that makes sense. And then Wiry Spindell, I guess, again, I just like almost sort of in the Elizabethan times, you know, when like the characters' names would, ref- whatever that word is, it's not like onomatopoeia, but whatever that word is that a word sounds like what it means. Uh-huh. Onomatopoeia. Is that onomatopoeia? Yeah, yeah. That a word sounds like gush. Uh-huh. 
or yen, anything in Yiddish, you know, kvetching, kvelling, right, 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 yeah. right, right. right. So that's an onomatopoeia, a word that sounds like what it means. I mean, its definition that it, its definition sounds like what the word is. Right. Okay. So then, then I, I you know, how the, you know, Elizabethan plays that the idiot was Tom Foolery, you know, or like the beautiful girl was hot hottie. Yes. <laughs> so I just thought Wiry Spindell sounded like this dude. So that's why. So your first movie, uh, My Life's in Turnaround, it came out like you said, 92. How did it come about, you and your, your partner, your friend at the time? Yeah, yeah, we're still friends, Donnie and I. And you didn't see They're Out of the Business, have you? No, it's your, the sequel to that. How do we yes. see that? Yeah, it came out on I, IFC, put it out last year. It's recent. Um, so it played in New York, and then it went out on, on VOD for three months, you know, and I think now it's on Showtime now. Okay. And then it'll, after whatever that window is, in six months, it'll go to sort of out on all the digital platforms. But well, uh, I, I mean, I'll send you a copy. But, but for all the other millions of people that want to see it, unfortunately, well, it's on Showtime now, which is a great thing. But then it's got to wait like six months, and then it goes out on iTunes and all that stuff. Or the millions of people can come to my living room, and we yes. can watch it there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I'll send you a copy because it's it, for all the Turnaround fans and even people who never saw Turnaround. It, it's 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 really funny. It's Donnie and I get back together twenty years later after having had a falling out. Well, what um, happens uh, to me? Or just to get self indulgent, the my life's in Turnaround. Um, I was right out of college. I didn't know what I was going to do with my life. And I watched this movie about two guys who don't know what they're going to do with their lives and they figure it out. So what is the sequel 20 years later? What happens? Well, well, what happened 20 years later um, is that Donnie and I have had a falling out. I've just been fired from my, my new big television show, I Love Cake, which was an homage to Starved, you know. And uh, it's sort of like I've been making these TV shows and Donnie's been trying to write the great American novel. And, and I, I get fired. My agency fires me. I basically say, fuck it. I got to move back to New York, find Donnie, and we got to make another movie. So I, I find Donnie. He's like, stay the fuck away from me. You're the Antichrist. And I'm like, oh, come on, get over it. So we had a little argument. Big deal. He's like, no, you tried to fucking sell me into white slavery. You know, I'm like, whatever. So. The hook is that we're going to get back together to try and make another movie. But since we already did that with My Life's in Turnaround, and then many people sort of made their versions of that after our movie, you know, a movie about making a movie, we obviously didn't want to just retread that territory. So They're Out of the Business actually is about two guys now sort of turning 40 rather than 25. And how do you do friendship and romantic relationships and family relationships as a 40-year-old? You know, when you have to maybe reinvent some of your dreams or do you still go after the same dreams? So it's really a movie about that rather than more sort of fish out of water, funny two guys trying to make a movie who don't know how to do it. Um, but so to answer your first question, you know, Don, I have been driving a cab for eight years in New York. I've been writing spec scripts. It was the 80s. So the 80s was all about the spec script boom. Like write a script, you'll sell it for $15 million in a bidding war and then it's all over. You know, your life is made. So that's what was happening in the 80s. So I was writing 50 hours a week and driving a cab 50 hours a week. And um, I wrote 20 scripts, a book, which I later turned into Wiry Spindell. It was a book first that I couldn't get published. 10 years later, I turned it into a film. Um, and I was getting very depressed because there was this fracture between this love and this talent I knew I had and actually making a movie. And so, I would sit in my cab across from movie sets and with tears in my eyes wondering, how do I get from here to there? And, I, and my personality is such that I didn't want to work my way up, which is a perfectly fine way to do it. I wanted to walk on the set when I was the writer, director, star producer of the movie. 
That's just my personality. So it probably took the same 10 years that it would have taken had I gone up through the sort of more traditional ranks at film school. Or... So I was going to quit because I thought, you know, I'm 30. Let me just, it's too heartbreaking. So let me take some time off. And then this movie Laws of Gravity came out, which was Nick Gomez's first film. The guy, guys at the shooting gallery made that movie. It was like the first movie. Did, did you see it? Yeah, no, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah so yeah. it's the first sort of no-budget $35,000 movie that came out that actually made a splash and was in theaters. Yeah, it's and a good movie. People saw it. What? People, it got distribution and people saw exactly. it. Exactly. It was at the Waverly on, on, on 6th Avenue and you could go pay 10 bucks and go see a movie that was made for nothing. Right. And so I remember I knew those guys and I thought, well, fuck, if they can do that, I can do that. I mean, so before I quit, let me move home, save money, scrounge up some money and make a movie. And I ran into Donnie, who I knew from for years, and he was sort of in the same place. And and so we, he said, I'll make a movie with you. So I said, great. So that's sort of the rest is history. So we, we, we scrounged together like $17,000 from our family and friends and shot this film that we ended up shooting for $40,000. And then John Pearson, who's kind of the godfather of all great independent film coming out of the 90s, um, saw it, loved it pieces of it gave us, you know, through his company, $200,000 to finish it. How did, how did you run, how did you meet him? Because that guy John was... Peterson, Donnie, I think Donnie, oh, no, I think we just invited a bunch of people to, to not even a rough cut. We had like 20 minutes of scenes. The Phoebe Cates scene, like we cut together a couple of the Martha Clinton scene and we showed it at Magna, which is this uh, post house in New York where you, you know, do post, a post facility. And we, we invited everyone, Sony Classics, Miramax, John Pearson, because we knew he was a guy that funded, helped finishing funds for movies. We invited everyone, we showed it them. He saw it there. He really liked it. The distributors liked it. They said, great, show it to us when it's done. Um, but he was the only one that would pony up some money That's to great. help us finish it. Well, John Pearson at the time, he had, well, he'd done Slacker and... Um, Slacker, Go Fish. Uh, are these clerks? Yeah, she's got to have it. He gave us the finishing money, so we finished the movie. And then we, you know, it's so funny because that movie has such a, a, a funny mythology about it, you know, because people have loved it for so long. But, but so we'll read that, like, we were the darlings of Sundance and were released by Miramax. Neither of those things were true. Okay, we didn't get in Sundance. We actually took, well, if by getting in Sundance you mean that we had the 60 millimeter print in our hands and cans, and went to Sundance to try to find someone to screen it against a wall for, then yes, we got in Sundance. Like, we were allowed physically into the Sundance area, but right. the movie was not in Sundance. <laughs> the plane landed, you walked off the plane. Yeah, with the, with the movie in, in cans. Did and, that work? Did you get well, to show it anywhere? No, we didn't show it anywhere, but we were stalking John Pearson still. Uh -huh. Oh, so you, he hadn't agreed yet? No, he hadn't agreed yet, and we had shown it, like, what was it? I don't know, so we, we shot in November, we finished December, Sundance is January. So we were like, I don't know, in LA, I can't even remember, trying to show it to people. And, and so we didn't get in Sundance and Miramax didn't pick it up. A tiny company called Arrow Releasing picked it up. And a guy named Jason Blum, who's now went on to, to produce, what was that, $300 billion low budget scary movie. Um, oh, uh, paranormal Activity. Yeah. yeah. So like Jason, God bless him, is going on to great things to himself but he was working at Arrow at that point and so they picked it up and we got it in the Angelica which is the coolest at that that's point that's where I saw it yeah yeah the only New York City kind of indie great venue to screen your films we got it in the Angelica got a good review from the New, from the New York Times and uh, 
played in a hundred markets, you know. You know what happens after the movie comes out? It's kind of you guys hit Pater. You that's the dream you were just talking about. With uh, it, it probably did even better than uh, Laws of Gravity. Uh, no, it didn't actually. Um, that's what I mean. <laughs> what do you like, mean? Well, the mythology behind it, it was like it did millions. Like it yeah, that's how I see it. Yeah, it made hardly any money. Uh-huh. Um, we did play in seventy markets. That's true. We played all. We played in, the, in New York for ten weeks. We played across the country. So the movie got visibility, but it did hardly any video units. I, we just did a deal to re-release it on DVD and video, and, and it's out on Amazon now, actually streaming. Mm-hmm. So, um, but when it came out, it didn't do any business hardly, and the DVD sales were tiny. So no, in terms like Brothers McMullen, I think made. Eleven million dollars. We made, I think, under a million. Oh, it seems like you guys made the same amount of money. The That's mythology. what I'm saying. It seems yeah. like us, Clerks, Brothers McMullen, were all the same, but it yeah. wasn't even close. Clerks made five million, I believe, um, maybe more. We made again. I think we made less than a million bucks. Uh huh. But um, but it didn't matter to us in that respect. I mean, well, it would have been nice to make some money from it, but we were just into the fact that it got visibility and now we were on the map and we can make more movies. So what happens next? You get a, a ton of meetings like in the movie you hope for or? Yeah, well, it's funny. So we, yeah, we get signed by William Morris. We get a meeting with a guy named Carrie Woods who was a producer who had made a few movies at that point. So I married an ax murderer and stuff like that. We pitch him an idea for our next movie. He loves it. We go into a guy named Kevin Misher who I actually picked up Kevin Misher's friend in my cab. And he said, oh, I have a buddy who works in development at like TriStar. His name is Kevin Misher. I'm like, oh, cool. Then it happens to be that Kerry Woods knows Kevin Misher too. So we ended up in front of Kevin Misher, who's gone on to make huge movies. I think The Mummy or something like big. He's a big Hollywood producer now. We go and we pitch him. He's a TriStar. He says, great, write the movie. We write the movie. They love it. They're not going to let us be in it, but they're going to let us direct it. So Donnie and I could direct it, $10 million budget. We cast Ben Stiller. Right. We jumped to CAA. And at that point, it becomes like, we didn't realize it, but that was our first like 15 minutes. Like that, we were the new kids on the block. We had this indie movie um, and all these big agencies were after us. And we jumped to CAA and we got three deals in a week. To write this one, to write and direct that one, to write this one. And then we got a TV show. And that was in a time when film people weren't making television shows. So even we had this small little indie movie and people in TV were like, well, why would you want to make a TV show? Like they treated us like we were royalty. It was like incredible. So we got a show on Fox after The Simpsons and that was all in a year. So we have this show that's on, on, on going to be on after The Simpsons on Sunday night. It's called Two Something. We have three movie deals and we have this movie that's about to go with TriStar. We, we cast Ben Stiller. Mark Canton, who was running the, the studio at that point, said if you cast any of the Baldwins in the other character you have a greenlit movie wow. yeah it's like anyone billy alec daniel the dog any of them, any of them any, yeah. yeah sparky yeah and so donnie knew all those guys from long island so we're like oh please so we met with billy and steven and, and amazingly enough we we I don't know, we couldn't end up casting one of the baldwins you got ben stiller but not steven baldwin yes <laughs> yes and now this was in 1996 so ben was very respected had made a few movies had had his television show but Certainly, you know, hadn't blown up yet right? to the extent that he has now. Um, so the movie went into turnaround. And that's when I realized that, oh, I get it. Because it, I had not lived a charm life. It had been 10 years in the fucking cab and writing 20 scripts. But once we made our first movie, I didn't realize it, but it had, it had been charmed. 
it came out, we got a TV show, we got three... And so now I saw, oh, I see what happens. You can write a million movies that never go, make a lot of money, but never make a second movie. And I said, fuck that. I didn't sign up. We didn't make my life a turnaround to do this. Right. And so I said, I'm going to make my next movie. I, I, I wrote it for Lucy Fell and went off to make it by myself, you know, meaning for any little money again, because we had just made a movie for $200,000. I was by ourselves. Now I was with CAA and we had all these movie deals. You better believe I was going to make If Lucy Fell any way necessary. So, so what happens to Donnie? I mean, just to... At that point, Donnie and I are on the TV show together. We, we, that, that, we do a whole season of it. We make, you know, decent money so we, don't, we can pay the rent. We kind of are solvent. Donnie and I have a fight on that TV show and we stop talking to each other in the middle of filming. Wow. I walk off the TV show. They all threaten to sue me if I don't come back to the TV show. So if I don't come back to make 45 grand a week, they'll sue me for a million dollars a week. But that's how displeased I was. And believe me, I, I don't have a lot of money. 45 grand a week that walk around and say lines is that's pretty job. amazing. Yeah. But that's how unhappy I was. It's less than, than you made as a cab driver, by the way. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but so I came back. I came back to the show, finished the show. Donnie and I weren't even speaking. That's right around the t that's so if Lucy fell, I had made it gets into Sundance. Um, well, can I ask what happened with you and Donnie? Does yeah, we just, you know what it was? What happened was both of us were very frustrated about the TV show we had because we, we again were coming from the school of writing, directing, producing, and starring in our own movie. So suddenly we had all these cooks in the, in the kitchen in network television. You have the studio giving you notes, you have the network giving you notes, you have like 15 people giving you notes, some of which you respect and most of which you don't. And you'd rather just be doing all this yourself, but they kind of don't let you do that. So the show was becoming watered down, not something that I wanted to make. And I was getting very frustrated. And we had a co-creator who was an old friend of mine. And one day at a table read, when we're all reading one of the scripts, I just, I was just not interested. And he, my, this third party came up to me afterwards and said, you know, do you just not want to be here? Do you, why don't you take acting, get an acting coach? And that flew me off the handle. And I, I'm not a fighter, but I, Donnie had to separate me in the sky from having a, like me going at him. I stormed off the, the, the lot. It got written about in the tabloids. Eric Schaefer is crazy person blows up. And, and that's when I threatened to walk off. And Donnie never called me. He didn't call me to even say, are you okay? He didn't call me to say... Like right away, like that hour, the next hour. I mean, I stormed off the fucking set of our TV show. Like I shut down production. You know, on a, and, and so he didn't call so, me to... Huh? Because this guy insulted you. Yeah. Yeah. And because I was, I mean, it was the build-up frustration of the whole thing. It wasn't just one insult. And so Donnie, even if he wanted to call me up and say, hey, I disagree with you, or Eric, what the fuck are you doing? Like he, he didn't, he just didn't call me. And that so hurt my feelings that my best friend, I felt, didn't have my back. Um... You know, and we've since, we're very dear, dear friends now and made our second movie together. So we didn't talk, though, for a couple of years. Did he say why he didn't call you? Is it, was well, he yes. And, and right, when we, when we then, then I didn't see him for a few years. I made a Lucy Fell. He went off and made a movie, The Suburbans. I, I wrote him a notes congratulating him on that movie just to, to try to, I, I don't know, just to, it had been a couple of years and to extend an olive branch. And so over the next couple of years, we, we lived four blocks away. We'd bump into each other and slowly we we then had a talk and, and became friends again and and he just voiced that he was equally as as frustrated and and didn't like how i handled it and but couldn't maybe say that to me and 
you know, he just handled it the way he handled it. I handled the way I handled it. And I totally accepted, you know, in retrospect that he handled it the best way he could, you know, and, and it, he wasn't wrong. I wasn't wrong. Well, I was wrong. I shouldn't have, I should not have handled it that way. And to do it, to have to do over, I wouldn't, but you know, the fact that he didn't reach out, he, we all do the best we can, you know what I mean? And he was freaked out and like, I was basically screwing us out of this $45,000 a week meal ticket by me being freaking out. Right. He didn't want to fucking deal with me, you know, and, and I can appreciate that from his point of view. Uh, so what happens if Lucy Fell comes out? So if Lucy Fell comes out. And you have a lot of big stars in that besides. Yeah, big star. Well, at that point, they weren't big stars. Sarah Jessica Parker was, again, had worked for years, but she wasn't a big star. She was like a B-level, very respected, but B-level actress at that point, as uh-huh. was Ben Stiller. Scarlett Johansson was a fucking 10-year-old kid that I found. Right. Um, you, are you taking credit for Scarlett Johansson? Did you discover her? Is that well? That was her first movie. So, how did I mean, what, how did you find her? How was the audition? Or well, we ca- you know we cast. She got came in and cast. Or maybe she had made one little other movie before that. But that was certainly was there something movie. you saw in her? Oh yeah, she was amazing. She was brilliant. She was like gorgeous and sweet and amazing. Yeah, and if Lucy Fell, she's amazing. Mm-hmm. So yeah, she shined. I mean, she shined, no doubt. Um, so. Yeah, I mean, I didn't go on a talent search to find her. I, I can't take credit for her career. Obviously, I cast her in that movie because she was brilliant and she was the best 10-year-old little girl I saw. Right. You know, for the part. So, but so, it, I mean, we made the movie for $3.5 million. So, it certainly wasn't by, even Hollywood standards in 96, it was still a, a very low-budget movie, but compared to a, a $40,000 16-millimeter movie, it was gargantuan. It was like a David Lean movie. You know? Right. So, it was 35-millimeter, it was trucks, it was... That was truly like a sick dream. Like, turnaround was a dream. I'll never forget me and Donnie driving to the set at 6 a.m. on 76th Street um, in his little Dodge Omni with our bagels and coffee and rounding the corner. We were shooting the John Sayles scene on the first day. Why? Yeah, you got John Sayles in this movie. Right, in My Life's in Turnaround. Uh-huh. And uh, we got that because John Sayles had played in Eight Men Out Donnie's real-life grandfather, Ring Oh, Arden. wow. Yeah, or great-grandfather, uncle, or someone. Ring Lardner Sr., the famous writer, was, is Donnie's real family. Mm-hmm. So we, we wrote John Sells and said, hey, we're making a little movie, and you happen to play Donnie's you know, real-life grandfather, uncle, whoever he is, and, and uh, that was cool. And he said he would do it, this, this scene that's his famous scene. So that's our first day of the first time I'm, I've ever been on a film set. Mm-hmm. I'll never forget that. That was special in an amazing way. But making Lucy Fell was special in a whole different way. So we make that movie. It does really well. Goes to Sundance. In my you know opening Sundance speech, I again put my foot in my mouth, which I've learned not to do as much, you know. And what did you say? Well, I, you know Jeff Gilmore, who who, who no longer run, you know programs a festival, was was the programmer, and I said in front of everyone in a packed Saturday night opening night kind of thing venue, I said, you know, I've, it's always been my dream to be in Sundance. You know, and we made this little movie, My Life's in Turnaround, and everyone cheered. And I said, unfortunately, that didn't get in. It took a maverick, unknown company like Sony to get us in this independent film festival. And, uh, and, everybody, <laughs> and everyone in the audience was like, ooh. And I turned to Jeff Gilmore and said, but I'll take it any way I can get it. And I was being honest. I was like, yeah, yeah. I'm not a baby. There's politics involved in everything. I'm not saying you're bad for that. I'm just I'm saying it like it is. And people don't, usually don't want you to say it like it is. They just want you to shut up and take your chocolate cake, you know. Right, what you've learned. Oh, well, let's let's go back to my life's and turnaround. Um, uh, you do have some amazing cameos in that movie, and I think that 
that obviously helped uh, get you guys' attention. But how did you get Phoebe Cates for the movie? Well, Phoebe Cates, I picked up in my cab. I was driving my taxi in real life. I had I had dated Molly Ringwald because she had seen another script of mine. I'd gone out. Um, I we started dating. I wrote it for Lucy Fell for Molly, and then Molly and I broke up. So I was back in the cab. So like after being in a hot tub on Mulholland with the 22 year old biggest movie star in the world, writing a movie for her and thinking, oh, I'm done with that cab. Like nine months later, I'm back in the cab, <laughs> and that that's why I still have my hack license. I'll show it while you, wait, this is, I still have my hack license. It's not renewed, but I keep it just to remind me that I never want to say never. Right. Anyway, so I have the script. I come back to New York and I'm driving the cab again and I pick up Phoebe in my cab. And as I did, whether it was Dudley Moore or Isabella, Isabella Rossellini, who I picked up twice in the same day. That's weird. In different places, like bizarre. I would pitch people like, hey, I'm a movie maker. Will you want to be in my movie? And so she was super sweet. And we sat there and I gave her Lucy Fell and she read it and said, this is cool. But for whatever reason, didn't want to be in, didn't want to do that. Or, and, and then it's around the time that Donnie and I decided to make turnaround. So I asked her, will you do this funny scene where I pick you up in a cab? And she said, sure. And then Martha Plimpton, I met Donnie and I, there's a place on Broadway in 102nd Street called the Broadway Diner. And uh, that's where we would go every day, have our breakfast, and on a yellow sketch pad, come up with my life's and turnaround, like, write the scenes. And one day she just came in there, because she lives in the neighborhood, or she used to. And so I walked up to her, and I was like, hey, will you be in our movie? She's like, sure. So <laughs> it was just like wow. bumping into these stars in New York and asking them, like, and they said yes. But how many people did you ask? It's amazing, because people, how many did you ask that said no? The only person that said no, I think, was John Leguizamo and, Mar and Samantha Mathis, who I ended up dating, actually. And so did Donnie. <laughs> like, wow. but, um, years later, and Samantha's a great girl, but later, I, we, I alone bumped into John Leguizamo and Samantha Mathis. It was right around the time of Super Mario Brothers. So, and, and I bumped into them in a bodega on 92nd and Broadway. John Leguizamo, I, I, I recognize Samantha Mathis because I had such a fucking crush on her from Pump Up the Volume. When she does one of the all-time sexiest moves where she takes off her shirt with one hand over her head. And, uh -huh. is, has, it was just so, and I've always loved her since then. And so I go up to her and I'm like, hi, will you be in my movie? She's like, yeah, I don't know, get me a script. I'm like, I don't, there is no script, but will you just be in it? <laughs> she was like, I don't know. And then I turn to Leguizamo and I'm like, hi, aren't you an actor too? And he's like, no, I'm not. Wow. And, he, and I'll remember, never remember. And you know what? I'm sure I might have said that. Then when I realized it was him and he was being, well, whatever, you know. Well, you were probably insulted. Yes, and I'm sure that if I was him now and some dude came up, hopefully <laughs> I would, I don't know how I would handle it, but I can appreciate that he handled it that way. Have that people I, come up to you since uh, now, you know, the past years, asked you to do movies like you did? Yeah, they do. And how, you've said no to all of them. Pretty much. What? Yeah, no, I, no, listen, I try to be helpful. That's half a joke. No, I, 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 I listen. I remember and appreciate all the help I've gotten and still get. So, yeah, I try to be in them when I can. I think that I'll say, give it to me. I got to like it. It's got to be good. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, my life in turnaround was really good. So we were asking people to be in a funny movie and be funny, you know, so they, they appreciated that. I mean, so a couple of times people give me scripts and it's just it's not going to work, you know. Yeah, it's not good.
But that's not true. I, I, I lie. I have said yes. I have said yes. And so you've done them. Yeah. Yeah. And what is it like? I mean, it takes a lot of balls because you're in a cab in New York. I've never seen, even thought I had enough time for someone to pitch me a movie. You just go oh, in yeah, it right well, away? How does that oh, work? Yeah, I picked up Dudley Moore once and bang, you know, it's Dudley Moore, my hero. So I started saying, hey, I don't even know if I had a movie that was right for him. Or, you know, I, I just start pitching him. Hey, will you be in a film? I have this. I wrote this. And they're all very nice and say, send it to my agent or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and Phoebe, yeah, I just launch into it. I mean, I have from, you know, I picked up Sarah Jessica Parker in my cat. And, and uh, before we met a Fousey Fowl, I picked her up. And I remember, 86 in Columbus and took her to like a little tea coffee place on 23rd and 9th. And, oh. and, I, and I remember then I met her. We had the same agent as CAA. I met her at a party in L.A. I said, hey, I picked you up in my cab a few years ago. She said she remembered. And I gave her a Fousey Fowl and the rest is history. Um, I mean, at that point, we hadn't... You, we you've been a real director, though. By that point, you had made yes. a film and you're on TV. Yes. So it's a lot yes. easier. Yes, that's a lot easier. But, I mean, I, I picture that day in the cab, too. I mean, like, however long I had, I utilized that time, you know? Yeah, that's, that's amazing. What, um, you work with a lot of models as actresses in your films. What is that? Why is that? And how is that working with models? There's <laughs> <laughs> not that many, Adam. There's one. More no, than one. But all their films. What? What about Fall? She wasn't a model. Amanda Vicadney was not a model. She was a she was a talk show host and a, and a, and married to a. She was a talk show host in in England when she was eighteen. She had a show called The Word. Uh huh. And she was kind of a wild child socialite and married to John Taylor from Duran Duran. I turned her. I mean, we made her a model for the movie. I mean, we made her we made her play a character of a model. Right, right. But she wasn't a model. But she was a very beautiful girl. Yeah. Do I cast beautiful girls as my leading ladies? Like, duh. What kind of fucking question is that? Like, yes, I do. And so does everybody else or anyone else would who's in their right mind. Right. The thing is that I get shit for it because I also play the characters. Like Martin Scorsese, directors that don't play themselves all cast. They, they're even worse. They cast Brad Pitt and shit to be them. Or Leonardo DiCaprio. They, ca- they cast Leo to be them and then and a beautiful girl to be their girlfriend. It's like... No one yells at, and also no one yells at Martin Scorsese saying he's a psychopath and wants to murder people because in his, in his movies, people get murdered. In the same respect, I am not my films always. So, and also in real life, I always say this, I got more trim as a cab driver than I did as a writer, director, fucking actor. Really? Yeah. Like in this PC world, the last person that's going to go out with you, if you're the writer, director, boss is anyone you work with. Mm -hmm. So fucking even actresses, there's this like PC backlash. So even women that might like me fucking stay away from me because I'm their boss. So how do you pick up a girl in a cab? What's your what's your spiel? What's the uh... well? My spiel is the same spiel that you have or any other single man <laughs> when you were single, whatever you know that any man has that tries to. And also, just for the record, I, I I'm not out there trying to get laid. I want a wife. I've always ever since I'm 19, I wanted a wife. So it's. Oh, in the pursuit of love is my pursuit. It's not in the pursuit of sex. Now, have I had sex along the way? Of course, but once or so, twice. Yeah, once or twice. Hey, I wanted to take a quick break. So, quick warning to everybody: this show gets real dirty real quick. So, if you got kids in the car, throw them out. If you want to watch, stream any of Eric's movies, go to our website, prowlersends.com. Also, now buy movie tickets on our website. We get a small piece of both. Fantastic. And if you're into The Dark Knight, you want to know when to buy tickets, 
there you go to our site prowlersense.com hit the little thing about it'll tell you when tickets go on sale for dark night so go to our website we get a small piece brother gotta make some money two weeks interview with bobcat goldthwaite very excited about that already did it over an hour really interesting if you like this episode tweet it out put it on facebook let people know for the love of christmas don't don't hog it up i want to thank uh, david schoenholz for directing for directing <laughs> i'm an idiot I'd like to thank David for uh, doing a great job for the logo for Proudly Resents and for Dream Tweet, the game show to go. Check out Dream Tweet. It's a very funny podcast. You want to know how to hand, uh, handle Dave. You got to handle him nicely like a gentleman. If you want to know how to reach Dave, go to our website. We have a link to his email and such. And again, I'm warning you. If your parents are in the room, get them out. You're going to be so embarrassed. Back to Eric Schaefer. It's, hold on, that's my mom. Oh, great. Yeah. Eric is walking over Hi, to mom. his mom. You're a little early, I think. Three minutes. Three minutes, Three that's minutes, all? Yeah. That's Adam on a Skype. I'm going to do an interview with Adam, who's a very lovely new friend. Oh. Say hi, Adam. Hey, how are you? Hi. Hi, I'm a big fan of your son. A great guy. Oh, Adam's hey, a, me too. Adam's just <laughs> speak out. I'll tell you the great story about this. We're gonna let us finish up and then. Sure. Now you're six minutes early, Mom. Very punctual. All right. Not according to my mom. Okay. Um. So, so I, you know, I, I if I met a girl in the cab or on the subway or on the street or in an audition, well, not in an audition. <laughs> That's not allowed. But um. Has that ever uh, happened though? What? Met a girl like from shooting or yeah, of course. or I, auditioning. I mean, I, there's no laws. There's no rules. I mean, I mean, you just, I mean, you have to be appropriate, but you can flirt with whoever you want to. And if, I mean, come on. I mean, love on sets is historic. Like love in the workplace is historic. That just happens to be where I meet people. That's my job. This is bad timing. I was actually going to ask you about all the, the sex in your movies and your mom comes in. So my mom, as my mom, as you know, is in most of my movies and trust me, she's seen She's seen it all. So there's only there's only 50 pages of my book that I won't let her read out of all my body of work. So trust me, my mom is 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 either turns a deaf ear to it or you can ask away. She won't be offended. She says you can't even hear. Well, what, what about well, let's talk about you trying to because uh, now I'm too embarrassed to ask about that because your mom. No, no, is, truly, you can, she's over in the other room. She's out on the balcony. She can't hear you. Don't so there is a lot of crazy sex in the movie. Like, my life's in turn around. I saw it in the theaters at the Angelica with the subway running underneath my legs. And then um, I rented again. My uncle was in town. I watched it with him. He loved it. But I knew that scene was coming up in the diner when you were talking about, um, I can't even say. Anal sex. Yeah. Anal with, yeah. And so I left the room, let my uncle watch it, came back. Went, oh, did I miss anything? And he's like, uh, no. <laughs> like he saw a ghost. But how do you... Your film, but you haven't cut that from any of your films. That's in all your films. There's a lot of explicit sex. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's what I like to. I mean, that's part of what I like to do is talk about the human condition, you know, and in every context and in every facet, you know. And and sex is a, like duh is a is a is a big deal to us, and it's a big component of falling in love too, you know. So it's not just sex for se for sex sake. It's sex is part generally of the conversation of a boy boy meets girl, you know. So. I just don't like to cut that part of the conversation, which we all know we have. And or whatever we do, or our likes or our dislikes in the sexual arena, we all know are very complex, very interesting, and we all have them. 
So the idea that there's this big secret, you know, behind the mystery of our sexual appetites, and that no one talks about it, but we all do it and feel it and talk about it, whatever it is for us, is, uh, is a sad thing. So a big component of my work has been to illuminate that in the same way I illuminate other things. Have you got, then is that part of the backlash you're talking about with people thinking that that's the way you are in real life? Cause that you well, it's not even that I'm not even that way because I am in a lot of ways. But no, the backlash is like, it's just this, that, that's the big, I mean, people are so terrified of, of uh, their sexuality. And I just mean, I don't mean that, you know, that whether they're straight, gay, bi, whatever they are, men, women, it's like what we do with each other. It just seems to be, I mean, the puritanical streak in this country is frightening. And I learned it the most when I made a movie called Never Again with Jill Clayburgh and Jeffrey Tambor, which was the first movie that I wasn't in. The only movie of mine I haven't been in. And it was this very sexy, honest love story between two 55-year-olds. And I can't tell you because I didn't cut when they were having sex. You know what I mean? I mean, it was R-rated, but it wasn't pornographic, obviously. But it was, like all my films, very honest. And, you know, Stephen Holden in the New York Times, I mean, just flipped out. Could not handle Jill Clayburgh with her quote-unquote truck driver mouth. And it was just disgusting to see iconic, you know, waspy, beautiful Jill Clayburgh walking around talking to her girlfriends about, you know, head and getting her pussy licked and stuff, you know. And trust me. Jill didn't say anything because I ran it all by her because I didn't want to be a 40-year-old man writing for 55-year-old women and from my imagination. So I ran it by her and Sandy Duncan and Caroline Aaron for its authenticity. And they said, no, no, you're fine. Like, this is how we talk sometimes. Uh huh. So, you know. And so people were most offended by that, you think, because they're older people because it wasn't coming from you? No, the audiences loved it. No, I mean the, the critic. Critics. The yeah. critics. The critics. I don't know why, but they it's like this puritanical thing when it's not kind of a Nancy Myers soft pedaled kind of adult comedy. Where drinking? Diane Keaton like giggles and covers herself with a towel, you know? <laughs> like this was like Jeffrey Tambor going down on Jill Clayburgh and having Jill Clayburgh's daughter come home from college and walk in on them uh-huh. while he's between her legs. You know, like hysterically funny scenes, but not bashful, not shy, you know. Right, the Meryl Streep version is she's holding, she's kissing. They're not actually right. There's yeah. no fucking. There's no, and it, it's this. It's that's no. Oh, that's too creepy. The old people having sex, you know. But no, the audiences, forties, fifties, sixties, seventies, year old people were literally coming up to me, women especially, saying, "Thank you." First of all, how do you know how to write this? You know, for a, a woman, mm-hmm. and secondarily, thank you so much for making a movie that speaks to adults and and what we go through. Right, as opposed to like two twenty good-looking twenty-two-year-olds, right? Yeah, having sex. Right. Uh, why did you decide to write that movie for older people? What made you? Well, I, you know, I, I, to be honest with you, part of it was I had worked with Jeff, Jeffrey and Jill on a, on Mitch Hurwitz's, the guy who created Arrested Development, had a show called Everything's Relative before that that Jeffrey and Jill and I were on on NBC, and uh, so I met those guys, and they're geniuses. So I thought. Again, like the cab, like, let me take advantage of what's in front of me. And I said, I'll, can I write a movie for you? And, you know, unfortunately, no matter how brilliant actors and actresses are, as they get into their 50s and 60s, obviously there are less roles for them, certainly as starring. So they were very excited to have me write a movie for them. So I wrote a movie for them. And I also, having it, I guess it was my fifth movie, I wanted to maybe experiment with seeing if I wasn't in it as an actor. 
would that would the would people take it differently in the critical world? And so the good and bad news of it was was I saw that casting these two iconic actors, beloved Academy Award nominated actors, um, didn't buy me any currency in terms of the reaction. But the, the good and the bad news of that is it didn't have anything to do with me being in it or not. Right. So it didn't make you did, so the experiment is it didn't make any difference. It, right, which I guess as a filmmaker, if, if certain people have it out for me in the critical world, they still do, whether I'm in it or not. But also, in a good way, I could think, well, it's not necessarily that I'm in it or not. It's, it's, it's the, the voice of the movie. And what about your, your latest film, uh, After Fall Winter? Well, that's shot in Paris. Why in Paris? Um, I shot that in Paris, A, because I've always wanted to make a movie in another place, <clears throat> like another country. I mean, I love New York, and New York is like a character in, in most of my films, in all my films. But I, I, I decided, you know, I like to challenge myself and mix it up, and I don't speak French. And I thought, um, because there was such, Fall was such a beloved movie for all these years, I had this idea that I thought was cool to make a film every 15 years about the same character, spanning a man's lifetime. Mm -hmm. um, and so it made sense, based on Fall, that after Fall Winter, the second installment in the quartet would be shot in Paris. So I also, and also quite honestly, I thought, again, I would try to maybe reinvent myself to critics. And again, I don't make movies trying to, I mean, I'd be stupid if I wasn't aware of certain critical backlash I get and try to be malleable, not at the expense of bastardizing my, my heart's desire, because I'll never do that. But if I can be malleable and make something I really want to make that helps maybe put me shed me in a different light critically, that would be fine. So I thought, let me make a movie in, in Paris. Release it in France first. Be the, like, get the French stamp of approval so all the, like, Emperor's New Clothes critics over here could go like, oh, look, you made a French move, movie in France and reinvented himself, and now we can love him, you know? Uh-huh. Um, unfortunately, the French didn't love the movie, as I thought <laughs> they would. Oh, no. So I thought, all right, well, fuck them. You know, I had a great time. It's a great movie. I'll come back and it'll be my cool next movie that I shot in Paris. Uh-huh. And how do you think it came out for you? What do you think? Well, the movie, I love the movie. Listen, you know, I think it's a, a beautiful movie. I think it's, uh, I think, I think it's gorgeous, you know, and, I, and a lot of people love it. And critically, it's, it's, it's the same as all my movies. There are tremendous fans and there's people that don't like it, you know, critically. I, I never have a problem with audience people. Audiences tend to really respond to my films. It's the, it's the critics that seem to have a, an agenda, some of them, and some of them are, are big fans, so, you know. Do you think it's like the backlash from your first film that they expected something different? I think like some filmmakers like Kevin Smith or whatever who had like a big, <coughs> sorry, who had a big, um, for a huge first film, the critics are like, you haven't lived up to that. Yeah, I don't, I don't know, but see, again, my first film wasn't huge. Uh -huh. hardly anybody saw it I mean like it's kind of weird like it seems like it did but and then no you know, I, I, I can't even begin to think what it is you know I, I just if I was gonna I think the bigger reason that my films are polarizing is because of the content and because I'm clearly somebody that is very unique and that I tell s stories as I said about the human condition that are, are brutally honest and people that embrace that and aren't frightened about that, generally respond to my films, and people that are afraid to admit things about themselves to themselves are horrified. Uh -huh. Because I'm the last person, also I'm the last person you want to bump into 
if you're somebody that never went after your dreams. Like just straight up. Why is so that? Huh? Why do you say that? Well, because I've written, directed, starred, and produced in eight feature films, five TV shows, and written a book, you know, and, and much by self-propulsion, spending my own money on it, getting it out there in the world. So I'm somebody clearly who's fearless, and, and I've taken, I have a lot of love, but I also get a lot of shots, and I keep getting up, and I keep saying, fuck them, I don't give a shit. There are plenty of people that want to see my movies, and I keep making movies. Mm-hmm. So if, there, if someone's out there who, like, you know, went to college to be a filmmaker and now is writing critique on film because they made their first little film and the girl they like laughed at them (laughs) and they decided they would never ever fucking do that again. They're predisposed to hate my guts. You know, let's just fucking, let's just call a spade a spade. You know what I mean? Yeah. Cause you did it. What do you, what do you, for recommendations for people who want to DIY it like you did, like you and Donnie did back in the nineties, what advice do you have? Well, now it's so easy. I mean, back then, we, you had to shoot 16 millimeter. You know, you couldn't make a, a film on tape. That would just be laughed out of, nobody would watch it. It'd be like a joke. So tape now, you know, digital, Jesus, you can go out there for $1,000 and make a movie. Right. A couple thousand dollars. I mean, literally, you can have your Starbucks job and go make a movie. You know, I mean, like, or less. I mean, we at least at 17 grand was a lot of money to us. We, we were cab drivers and bartenders. Like, we handed them out. My mother... Gave me 600 bucks. You know what I mean? It's like, it wasn't easy to, to get $17,000. Did like, she make that $600 back? No. She what? Creative accounting? Huh? No, <laughs> no, the movie never made back its money. Uh-huh. You know? We're good. Well, I'll let you talk to your mom. I'd love to talk to you again about, yeah. about trying to date. And if you do want to date Eric Schaefer, how do women find you? Cause <laughs> I'm I know on that... Facebook. I'm on Facebook. <laughs> All right. Facebook me. The guy's looking but for a wife. It's so great to meet you. And listen, yeah, any time. You know, I'm totally, totally cool. I'm going to go pitch AMC today, and i got to send some movies off to, to Europe because After Fall Winter is going to be at the Cannes Market to try to sell it European. So, oh, like, that's my crazy day. But but I totally appreciate your time, and, and it really meant a lot to me that you, that you showed the movie. It really, it's things like that that help me keep going because they can get black, you know, and, and I can think I'm just in this vacuum. And then something like that really was very, very meaningful to me, so I really no, I appreciate the movie and you talking to me. And uh, I have to say, like, you should see the movie now. It's available to people who are listening. But in the theater, the screening, the people in their early twenties loved the movie, and they had a, the same feeling I think you did when you made it and when I saw it. And I think that's really great. Like, just inspiring that you can do anything. And now I can't wait to see the sequel where you and Donnie hate your lives. So now, I'm just yeah, kidding. yeah. So, so email me. Uh, you have my email? Yes, I'll send you my okay, address. So email me your address, your hard okay. physical address. And I'll pop one in the mail. Like if you do it right now, I'm I'm doing a I'm mailing shit today. That's one of my chores. So I'll I'll go right now and mail. Great. And everyone else, you have to go on Showtime and watch it. So thank you very much, Eric. I'll talk to you soon. All right, bye. Adam, we're we're out of time for this interview.